Sand Center podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to follow our new episodes and leave a review as it really keeps me motivated to make more episodes. For more free resources on how to avoid and recover from toxic relationships and difficult breakups, check out the link in the description. You can also grab the free guide and webinar giving you the tools to spot toxic dating partners and heal if you've been unlucky to date one. I've also just launched the Toxic Relationship Recovery Program that will teach you everything you need to know on how to stay clear of a toxic dating partner, develop a shield so they don't target you, spot all the red flags and manipulation strategies, make better partner choices in the future, and how to heal and end people-pleasing and set clear boundaries so you'll never have to go through this again. You can find the link in the description below. Today we'll talk to Debbie about covert narcissism and how they differ from the traditional narcissist. Debbie is an expert and also an author on covert narcissism, so check out her books as well and you can find the link in the description. So let's jump over to the episode. So I just really want to say thank you for taking the time to come on this podcast and speak to me today. Um, And obviously part of the reason I wanted you on is because I found your book about narcissism and that you have expertise in narcissism, which I think is something that's so misunderstood. Um, Mm -hmm. And I just, I think because we have this idea that toxic people are the weirdo sitting in the corner and all quiet, I I meet so many people who are blindsided and who are dated. And I I had a I had an experience not with a narcissist, somebody with borderline, but again, a cluster B. And we, because we're not aware of it, and I think we have this romantic Hollywood film idea that you know things should love should be intense right we should feel a lot in the beginning um which fit right into these narrative because these people can be so charming in the beginning right which is why we have no idea how toxic they can be too so i was wondering do you want to start maybe just telling a bit about what you know what a covert narcissist even is etc so people can just understand a bit more what we're even talking about yeah sure definitely So a covert narcissist is exactly the same as an overt narcissist. It it has all the, you know, the DSM, the diagnostic manual for therapists, has the criteria for narcissistic personality disorder. So a a covert narcissist has those same criteria, but the um, the way the traits manifest looks different. And they are much more difficult to to spot and to recognize. Narcissists still can be, but it it gets very confusing when um, a lot of people find relief in my book because these are the people who know something's wrong with the relationship they're in. They can't figure it out. They start searching for answers. They find narcissism. They start reading and listening about narcissism. And a lot of it does line up, but a lot of it doesn't. So it's really confusing. And so they think, okay, maybe I'm on the wrong track. (laughs) You know, maybe this isn't who I'm dealing with, but there's enough in there to make you keep looking. And so, because the covert narcissist, you know, when you read um, traits in the DSM, like, grandiose sense of self, you know, um, someone who's really charming. It, it paints a picture of a very extroverted person who's clearly all about themselves and arrogant. And a lot of covert narcissists, sometimes they're shy. Sometimes they're quiet. Sometimes they are, um, you know, high up in the well, honestly, sometimes they're therapists, <laughs> they are coaches, they are humanitarians, they are usually people who are law-abiding citizens and very impressive people and very really involved in their kids' lives or in school. So these aren't people that fit the picture we have of Oh, that's, that's clearly a narcissist, you know, the per the person that's out there volunteering and helping the world, <laughs> mm. you know what I mean? But w- they still have a grandiose self sense of self and they still want um, admiration. 
So they get it. So they're in the perfect position to get admiration. Like, let's say you have a covert narcissist, um, narcissistic um, therapist. That's a perfect position <laughs> because you have people coming to you all the time and saying, thank you so much. You have helped me so much. You've saved my life. So it's that same dynamic of a narcissist who needs an energy supply, you know, to fill them with energy. So they look to people that they're helping or they look to other people who are so impressed with how they're helping the world and that's their supply. So these are really difficult. You can be in a relationship, oftentimes relationships with covert narcissists, and there's a spectrum with all narcissism, but with covert, um, there's a spectrum of how covert they are. You can also have a mixture of an overt and a covert. Um, but you can be, if it's the more higher on the spectrum of a covert narcissist, you're probably these are long relationships. These are relationships you're often in for 20, 30, 40 plus years without realizing you are experiencing psychological and emotional abuse. So are they able to actually have more stable relationships, the COVID narcissist, it sound compared to the more overt narcissist, is that correct? Definitely, definitely. Because they, they do the same things as far as manipulate, control, demean, devalue, intermittent reinforcement, all gaslighting. They do all that, but it's so covert. Mm. It's so subtle. It's so stealth that you don't notice. And it just becomes your normal. It sounds very much like what I experienced, even though I said that my experience was with somebody with borderline personality disorders. But while borderline is often described as, you know, the lack of emotional regulation that's expressed in outwardly rage, right, from idolization to rage, she internalized her rage. But all the manipulation like you described was still happening, etc. So the impact was still devastating, but it happened more subtle and slowly, which actually makes it even harder to explain to other people. Because if you can just explain to other people, well, she screams at me, she throws things in my face, then people would be like, yeah, that, that's abusive, that's not all right. But same, she would not outwardly rage. But she would suddenly put me on the silent treatment. It was she would suddenly create, you know, all these jealous plot lines and, like you said, gaslighting, making me think my reality was just not true, um, etc. So it happens so much more subtly. It sounds a bit the same you're describing here with the narcissist. And I guess the question is then, how can we spot them? Um, because you're right, they are harder to spot, right? Because they don't necessarily have that outwardly you know, aggression that might otherwise be categorized, like you said, even of the narcissist's normal arrogance when they expect superior treatment, we might not see that, you know, aggression towards a waiter or something that you normally would see with a more overt narcissist. Exactly. So something to look for, and also to notice, like when you're studying narcissism, another thing that gets confusing is during that beginning stage, that love bombing stage, we're always told, oh, it's, you know, with a narcissist, it, they're so charming and it's fireworks and it's, you know, all this, um, it's magical. It's not always like that with the covert narcissist. And so then you can think, oh, well, this is a narcissist. But what it, a covert will um, study you and learn what you need, learn what your, um, insecurities are learn what you're longing for and they become that and so you know one woman woman I was talking to she said I was confused because he didn't really um pursue me in a really dramatic way but I told her I said from what I had experienced with her that would have turned her off and so the covert it, 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 they're almost in some ways more intelligent you know, because, I mean, not to give them <laughs> props, <laughs> you know, but they're more crafty as far as, oh, picking up, they want, he wants this woman, but he knows if he gives her poems and flowers and all that stuff, she's going to be turned off. So he's the one, he's going to become more of a gentle, you know, he's going to have more of a gentle approach that will woo her. And that's what worked for her. So, um, but to answer your question, I'm trying to think why I went down that role. But it sounds like, it sounds like they have more emotional control to some extent, 
right? While while yeah. the, the the Trump narcissist, he simply can't you know control the fact his rage, and he need to you know blame somebody else, right? He just cannot control it, even if he wanted to. They're over exactly. it, right? It sounds like exactly. they have a bit more emotional regulation, so they can actually, like you said, maybe even be better manipulators. Um, yeah, because they're able to do that while the other narcissists simply can't. They will just let the rage out when it comes. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. So if you, yeah, thinking of Donald Trump with political, so then think of, and there's so many, there are so many <laughs> in the political realm, in Hollywood, in, you know, yeah. all, if you think of all the people that we raise so high and look up to, the covert would be the one that when someone talks about them, they would say, oh, he or she is, you feel like you're the only person in the room when they talk to you, they look you in your eyes, they're so calming, so gentle, so authentic, because <laughs> the covert knows that the covert, so here's another difference too. The big thing for the covert is how they look to other people, their reputation. So if you have, you know, Trump's more like, I don't care what you think, I'm doing this. <laughs> you know what I mean? A covert would never do that because they, it's very important to them that you like them. That's part of their energy source. So they will be the politicians that are smooth and charming and you think, oh, we're saved. <laughs> mm. So it's, <laughs> you know? al it's almost like a narcissist and a people pleaser merged together. <laughs> it sounds like, you know, to some yeah, extent. In the well, way, yeah, in some way, and kind of, kind of a warped, twisted people pleaser, yeah. Uh -huh. But yeah, that's and I find those people more dangerous. Yeah. Than you know, I'd rather know what I'm dealing with. Absolutely. Than, mm -hmm, is there a way? How can we spot these people then? Because the fact is, I think narcissists are hard to spot when you don't know what to look for. But the co or the overt narcissists, but once you know what to look for, they actually become quite easy to spot, right? Because like you said, right. there's this over the top intensity where you can ask yourself, does this feel natural? And if the answer is no, then it's probably a warning sign. It's always going too fast, right? So once you know the patterns, it's not that hard to spot the overt narcissist, I think. But the coverts are much more difficult, even when you kind of know these, because it's not so overly intense. It's not out of the ordinary, basically. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So. Um yeah, so some red flags to look for is, um, well, really the heart of all the red flags, and I'll mention different red flags, but at the heart of everything, uh, how to spot, how to, how to guard yourself from people like this is a skill that I think is the hardest, most difficult skill to learn as a human being, <laughs> and that is to trust yourself and to trust your body. I am a huge believer, and I talk about this all the time, of your body being the most accurate barom barometer of truth that we have. Mm -hmm. And so to really pay attention when you're around someone, how do you feel? If, if there's something they say, even though it sounds good, but your stomach tightens, listen to that over how anybody looks or anybody talks. That is the greatest, the greatest skill to develop. And it takes courage and it takes strength when everyone else around you is believing something different yeah. and everything in front of you looks normal, but your body is feeling constriction. Your, you notice your, you know, like I said, stomach tightening, you notice you, you feel flush or your neck feels constricted for some reason your body is screaming at you yes. and it's always looking out for you you know oh. so pay attention uh, constantly to that another thing is Debbie, can notice? i just say can i want to hear more but i just love that you bring this up it's so important i trained in somatic therapy which is why i almost i started oh. beaming smiling when you said this because we are so over reliant on our emotions, like how we feel and not some sensation, right? right? And often we forget that in the beginning stages, especially when we fall in love, we are blinded. And also we have a bias that steps in, meaning we have a tendency to presume other people are like us. 
meaning often we will rationalize away the behavior they might do that are toxic in the beginning, right? Or not really believe that it's true, meaning we can't fully trust our mind alone, right? If we only are reliant on that. While, like you said, when we listen to a sensation, and it takes training, you know, I, I work with people to learn how to sense and also sensing when are my boundary you know, violated, how can I somatically sense that? Because normally cognitively, by the time we're aware, it's too late. And I'm so happy you brought that up because I think it's so beautiful and it takes a lot of training that we have these three systems, emotions, thought and sensation, but we never learn to use sense. And I remember with my borderline, people always ask me whether or not warning signs. And when I think logically about it, oh, it was so great in the beginning, she was so sweet. But I remember one episode where I asked her about her ex and I asked her why she broke up with him because she always said I loved him so much and blah, blah, blah. And I said, then why did you break up with him? And then she said, while she kind of laughed, she said, oh, he got cancer and he became a liability. And she laughed and then she moved on. And in that moment, my stomach just tensed up. And then I rationalized, you know, I started saying, oh, I must have heard this wrong. Mm -hmm. But my body told me that something was not right, that I could somehow in my body right. sense a lack of empathy. But Debbie, sorry for interrupting you. I want to hear more about the, the strategies. Yes, definitely. And it, can you hear me okay? You're frozen. Oh, so can you hear me okay, Debbie? Am I back? Can Can you hear me again, Debbie? Yeah, definitely. Um, can you hear me okay? Yeah, you're back. It's My internet has been playing up yeah, all you're, day. You're going out, uh, um, in and out of freezing. Oh, no. I'll be quiet and let you speak. <laughs> Well, I was going to say with that, okay, with that story that's just so horrific, my guess is if that had been your first date, the initial meeting with her, you would have been turned off immediately and there would not have been a second date. Um, I should ask, is that true? Absolutely true. Go on? Absolutely true. Yeah. And that's the power of the love bombing phase because you experienced this amazing woman. You just move on, Debbie. You keep talking. I'll be quiet. It's my internet that's bad, I think. Okay. Okay. Um, that's the power of the love bombing phase because you were trained at the beginning to see her in a certain light. And so anything that once the, you know, demeaning and devaluing, and once the red flags start coming, you saw her through the lens of the first girl you met. <laughs> You know, and so you excused her behavior, you found some way in your mind to give her the benefit of the doubt, which is so common. And that's, that's the power of the love bombing phase. So I would say, you know, to, to continue with red flags. One thing that's helpful is just to recognize these people are out there. And so watching if everything is great at the beginning, just distant. Or are there more and more times that you find things happening that make you go, huh, that's interesting. Start paying attention to those and see if they start to become more common. Um, another thing to really watch, well, and I'll add to that as far as their words and actions, a narcissist's words and actions don't match. So they can be, especially if they're more covert and crafty, mm -hmm. Um, they can use words, you know, therapy type words like, oh, yeah, I take self-responsibility and I'm working on myself and I do this and I do that. And then you hear that and you think, oh, that's so great. That's exactly the person I'm looking for, you know. Um, but if you really look at their um, actions, they usually don't match the words that they're saying. So that's a huge red flag to look for, especially over time. At the beginning, maybe their words match their actions, but see if that's consistent over time. I like that. The other thing that's really good one, yeah. actually. I really like that. I think that's an important one for people just to stop and and hear that. By the way, I solved the internet problem, so I hope it'll be better now. But uh, oh, but but I I really like that because it's so easy again to make excuses, like you said, especially if they hooked you in a little bit, right? If it's not the first date, for me it was about one and a half month in. And by then, when you attach a bit, it's easy to make excuses. So again, it comes back to what you said before, which I think is such an important point to learn to trust yourself, because the mm -hmm. way to not get caught up in somebody else's narrative is to have faith in our own perception of reality, right? When we start doubting that, which is also why I think if people are 
more questioning about their own reality, they're easier to manipulate, right? And maybe more likely to fall prey to this. Definitely, definitely. And they'll use that against you. And, and that's part of gaslighting too, is, you know, you'll ask them a simple question of like, you, are you okay? You seem really angry. Is everything okay? And they'll come back with, no, I'm fine. I'm just tired. Or mm -hmm. So your body's feeling their anger. And then when they have that response, then you think, I can't trust my body. Mm -hmm. You're like, you don't think that consciously, but unconsciously, you know, you just think, oh, okay, I must be reading into it. I must be overly sensitive, you know, and, and there's so many moments like that, that over time you really lose that trust. Mm. Even if, I mean, most of us don't have that trust anyway, but even if you had a semblance of trust in yourself <laughs> at the beginning, <laughs> you know, over time that just really, um, gets wrecked yeah, yeah. I, I like that and you know one thing i think at least let me know your opinion on this but one thing i found is really good which i've done ever since i ever dated that borderline is use journaling because one i find it gives me a good understanding of what my usual responses is and the fact is it's hard to know when for example you're being more feeling more anxious than normal if you don't know what your normal set point is right so by knowing now what my normal is, because I can see my patterns through my journal, I also know if I meet someone, if suddenly I, whether they elevate me or whether they keep pulling me down, right? But without knowing that kind of set point, we don't know if somebody makes us, you know, so I find it really good to also, when I meet someone, I will actually journal about it too, because I can go back and see is there a pattern and are they consistently making me feel bad? Or maybe it was just a one-off day, which is normal. You Everybody has a bad right. couple day. But if it's consistent, then there probably is an issue, right? So I don't know what you think. I just found journaling was a really helpful way for me to see patterns and also my own patterns in where I participate in that dynamic and maybe allowed some of the abuse to happen. Yeah, I think that's a great idea, especially when, when I look back on my journals, I had no clue what was going on. Mm. <laughs> but if you have, you know, like the knowledge you have and the P and the more knowledge we're getting, I think that's a brilliant idea. I think it's super smart. And also to journal about another thing to look for is your energy level mm. with this person over time. You know, maybe at first you found you have more energy, but over time, even though you can't maybe figure out why you're just finding yourself more tired mm. than normal. And you're just finding yourself more drained. And I mean, eventually long-term wise, most people um, with that have been with a covert narcissist end up having health issues because mm. it really affects the body, you know, and because they really are energy vampires, <laughs> They are draining your energy without you realizing it. So that's another really great red flag to look for. How How is my energy since I've been in this relationship? Yeah, and also because I think that's a great... I, I, you have so good points. I love it. Because mm -hmm. also, I think one of the things that I guess of a definition of a healthy adult-adult relationship versus, you know, if it was an adult-child is an adult-adult relationship, there's a pen to be a sense of mutuality, meaning that we are two people who care about each other's needs and boundaries, right? And I guess what often happened with the narcissist, like you said, is it really is all about their needs, which is why mm -hmm. suddenly over time you start feeling more and more drained because you're not getting your needs and you're giving, 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 right? So it's such a good point. I think, oh, I love you have some really wonderful points of how mm -hmm. people can just notice it. And again, you're right. You can feel that somatically, right? Because when you spend time with them, you literally just feel tired. Um, mm -hmm. And like I said, I actually had the same with the borderline and I didn't know why. I thought, why yeah. do I feel the same way as when I've been, you know, because I'm separated. When I spent the weekends with my two kids, I thought that's weird, you know, and it's okay with my kids because I'm their dad. I'm supposed to look out for all their needs. But I realized that's not what I want in an adult relationship. You know, I'm expecting that there's also a care for my needs. Right, exactly. There needs to be a balance. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's good to compare too with other people in your life, especially um, people who have been in your life for a long time, when you start to compare, okay, do I feel drained with this person? Do I feel drained with that person? It's kind of an interesting 
exercise to go through? Or is, is this the only person in my life that yeah. for whatever reason, I'm exhausted? <laughs> nice. Again, it's that comparison point, isn't it? We talked about with the same It's it's a really good strategy. I want to ask you actually about because I know with overt narcissists, so, you know, I, I've spoken to quite a few people who who dated overt narcissists. And like mm -hmm. I said, I had a borderline and I know that one thing that can be a good way to filter these people out is to set a boundary because often an overt narcissist will get quite upset when you set a boundary and obviously won't fulfill their needs, right? And there will be some kind of punishment, um, which is a good way to say that, see that maybe this is not a healthy person because a healthy person, again, would respect and encourage that you have some boundaries, right? But I don't know, is that the same with a covert? I don't know, or would they maybe not actually react in that way? I'm not sure. So I'm just really curious whether this might work as a strategy with a covert narcissist. No, I think that's a great idea because it is the same principle. Mm. You know, they don't want any boundaries there. They want free reign <laughs> to your energy <laughs> and whatever else they want from you. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I think that's a great idea because they won't react well to it. Okay. You know, and borderlines won't react well to it. No, they either. don't. <laughs> no. Yeah. It's it's shocking. It's, it's a shock to the system how they react to things that in your mind is a normal thing. And their, their reaction makes you question yourself. Like, was that too much to ask? Am, yeah. am I being to this, to that, you yeah. know? And that's why I think, again, the more we know ourselves, the less likely we are to be caught in the other's narrative, right? So I found afterwards, you know, asking myself basic questions like we never do, saying, when I date someone, how much time do I want to spend with somebody initially? I never thought about this before, but afterwards I did, right? And then I was able to set a boundary on how much energy this person could take, right? And actually be able to say, you know what? I don't want to spend five days a week with somebody I'm just getting to know, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and then next time, at least, if somebody wants that kind of attention, I can say, no, I'm only willing to meet twice a week or whatever my boundary might be, right? But I think if we can start thinking about this beforehand, it's easier to assert it when suddenly somebody come and want to suck all our time and energy, don't you think? Yeah, definitely. And I, I think, you know, just even like noticing how we're talking right now, when you have a healthy person in your life, you just never have these conversations. Uh -huh. <laughs> you never have, you just never have, I'm, I'm thinking of my best friend, Liz, who I've known since I was like 10 years old. Yeah. I don't think once have I questioned myself mm. when it comes to our friendship or something I said or something I did. I don't think once and she is extraordinary. I do wish everybody had a Liz in their life. <laughs> and I can't think once of one time I felt judged by her. I can't think of one time. Well, I mean, there's been times where I gave her the benefit of the doubt, but there, you know, in all these years, maybe, you know, on one hand I could count those, mm. you know, just knowing like, oh, okay, she reacted that way because she's going through this or that. But it's so few, you know, because we all have those moments. Yeah. That's where it's so helpful to have a baseline. This is how it's supposed to feel. This yeah. is how it's supposed to look. You know, we, we exhaust ourselves with these people just trying to figure things out. Yeah. You know, did I say that wrong? Did I do this? I should do this more. It's, it's exhausting. Yeah. And that's part of the energy drain, you know, is how much we spend trying to figure things out when you're in a healthy relationship, you shouldn't have to figure things out. It should be just clean and simple and you openly communicate and it, and it doesn't make your, you feel dizzy. <laughs> You know what, you, know? You, you said something beautiful, because I think this is part of the core of, of love together with safety is acceptance. That's one of the fundamental part of a loving relationship, whether it's a mm -hmm. friendship or romantic, right? You said Liz always accepted me. And I think mm -hmm. that is so at the core. And I think part of which I want to talk to you about in a bit about the gaslighting manipulation, so people have an idea mm -hmm. what, the, you know, to look for as well, is the fact mm -hmm. that you don't feel accepted in these relationships. You never feel you're good enough, that you're never giving enough. You often there are these subtle put downs, you know, they might even cover it up as a compliment because like you said, they're so smart. They yeah. might say, you know, yeah, they, you know, something like, you know, you're great in bed. You could make a good prostitute. And actually, even though you, you know, right. they can, they can say afterwards, oh, that was a compliment. You're hypersensitive. 
You're like, exactly. you just cope, you know, and it's so, so I, I've been exposed to this myself. And, and like you said, the important thing at the core to not complicate it is, you know, in a healthy relationship, we feel accepted, right? Like Liz gives you, huh. we don't feel there's constantly something wrong with us. And if we do, then maybe like you said, it's a toxic. So I want to talk to you a bit about more, what I, I call it the spider web, because I always say manipulation is like a spider slowly lying the web. And if you don't see it while it's being laid, then suddenly you're caught in this web and a tarantula is coming to eat you. But if you can see the small strings while they're being laid, you can just rip it away, right? And get right, rid of it. Right. And so I want to talk about the spider web, I call it. Would you be able to talk a bit about, yeah, some of these manipulation strategies, I guess I mentioned a little bit here and, and how they do it? Because then at least if we are aware, it's kind of easier to, to be able to look out for it, right? Yes, yes. Yeah, I'll use a couple examples from um, a parent. If you have, you know, a mom or a dad who is um, has narcissistic personality disorder, like you said, they will also often start something where it feels like it sounds like, not feels like, <laughs> it sounds like a compliment, but then there's this hidden jab, there's this hidden, you know, demeaning comment. Um, one woman I talked to, she said she was starting her own business. And her mom said, wow, it's fantastic. I'm, I'm so, I'm so proud of you and impressed. I'm, I'm just a little concerned, you know, cause I, I, you've never done anything like this. And I know it's a lot of work and I'm just worried, you know, that you might not, you, you know, you might not basically have what it takes, uh -huh. you know? So she's left with this. Okay. This sounds like a mom who's trying to help me, a mom who's looking out for me. But now I feel completely disempowered and I'm self-doubting and I'm wondering if I really can do this. And now I feel like I need to go take a nap and maybe I'm completely doing the wrong thing. Mm. So that that's an example of they will often give you advice with some comment that leaves you feeling really disempowered. Mm. They will also, you know, a parent will reject a child if they don't take their advice mm -hmm. you know well, it's like well i don't know the use of us talking i don't think we should talk anymore because you're not taking my advice mm -hmm. i'm talking about an older you know yeah, yeah. child not not a young child um like someone in their 20s for instance and so it's very it's like these cloaked insults but it's really difficult when especially when it's apparent that you've seen and experienced them loving you and holding you and being there for you. And so it just mind Fs mm. <laughs> you, you know, so much. Um, it's really confusing. And, you know, other ways that they, it's interesting. One thing that's very common, one trait that you would not think of, but definitely something to watch. It'd be interesting if, if you've, um, experience this because it's quite classic for the covert narcissist um, is to sabotage any important day to you to sabotage birthday mother's day father's day anniversary um, to sabotage you know maybe a day you got hired by a company you're really excited about to sabotage you know some important day or an important vacation. You've been dreaming of this vacation. They sabotage that, mm -hmm. but they do it in such a subtle way, you know, where I'll use myself as an example. I remember telling Liz one time, I don't know why, but every single birthday I have, I end up crying mm -hmm. by the end of the day. And I, I can't even pinpoint why, because there wasn't anything outwardly cruel you know, I got a nice card, a nice gift, you know, um, it was proclaimed it was my birthday. <laughs> it was about my birthday, but it, there would always be a comment like at the end where it's like, I, I didn't really feel like you really appreciated what you got. Oh, I'm so sorry. You know, I thought mm -hmm. I said, thank you. I really do. No, because I really went to length, you know, long, I, I went on a long trip to find this for you. And I, I just am surprised. I mean, it's okay. I'm just surprised. And then you feel so bad, mm -hmm. you know, and then 
there'll be a message of like, wow, you're really high maintenance. You know, I just feel like from the narcissist, I just feel like nothing I do is good enough for you. You know, it's like projecting mm -hmm. what you're actually experiencing. So you don't know why, and this is where it gets so confusing, but every single birthday, something happens, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they give you, I talked to one woman who, um, her mom had this huge box, you know, it's this huge, beautifully wrapped box and everyone's around and she opens up the box and she's going off to college and it's these towels that are like this horrible green color that she can't stand. And so you tell this to an, a person who hasn't gone through this and they think, well, wow, you're really entitled and complaining and, you know, your mom got you towels. You shouldn't be complaining. But when someone's in these relationships, we understand because <laughs> her mom has known her for 20 years. She knows what color she likes. She knows what she doesn't like. So there's like this malicious intent, you know, behind weird gifts that they give you gifts that someone should know you better, but they give you something that clearly like, for instance, maybe you're, a sensitive person and you, and, and you can't handle like strong smells, you know, like perfumes and things like that. Mm -hmm. So they give you this really strong perfume, you know, and you feel like you can't complain because mm -hmm. they went out, they spent money, they wrapped it up, they did all this for you and you're just left confused and you end up excusing them. Well, maybe they haven't picked up in the last 25 years we've been <laughs> married. <laughs> that I can't walk down the aisle of the grocery store where there are a lot of chemicals, you know? So it's all these things that you feel like if you tell other people, it's not going to sound like a big deal, yeah. but it's over time. So many of these things every day of little things like, Hey, when you go to the store, can you pick up some avocados? Yeah. Sure. Comes back. Oh, I totally forgot the avocados all like 70% of the time when you ask them, Hey, you're in the car and they're going to get some coffee. Yeah, yeah. Do you mind getting me some water when you're in there? Sure. Comes back. Ah, oh, totally forgot. But the thing to notice is they never go back mm -hmm. to get you that. Mm. And it's like slowly being worn down over time. It's a slow grind, isn't it? And like you mm -hmm. said, that's why it's so hard to explain and get help from outside sources, unless it's like a trained person who really, gets it like for example with you you can help people because you can understand and i think you also set the example of how they make basically project and make you feel that you're doing what they're doing so it's what i call blame shifting right. you know how they would say oh you're so high maintenance and you're like what <laughs> when you actually yeah. feel that and i had the same you know it was so interesting because uh, my borderline is even though she's not a narcissist but I said there's a big overlap in the trait she would basically constantly talk about her ex-partner every time I saw her and I think once in the year I mentioned my ex-wife and she would suddenly say oh I feel your ex-wife is really spilling over into a relationship and I'm like I mentioned her once in a year and you talk like every week and it just didn't make any sense to me um, and only right. afterwards did I understand this blame shifting of how they basically try to blame you what they're doing and you start getting really confused and thinking, am I crazy or what, what is going on? You know, which is part of the gaslighting where you actually, and I think that's the most devastating part of these relationships that people yeah. often don't realize. The fact is to feel safe in the world, we need to be able to make meaning of our experience, right? And when right. we start doubting our own reality, the world suddenly feels so unsafe. Literally everything feels right. unsafe. And I think that's one of the biggest devastating impacts of these relationships. And part of healing is to then restore our sense of self and that we can trust our own perception again, right? Because if we don't, how can we ever feel safe if we doubt everything we experience, right? And I think that is one of the most toxic parts. And that's why I also want to speak to you about, you mentioned it earlier, you talked about intermittent reinforcement. I think you just mentioned it like briefly. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I just wanna, can you talk a bit more about that just because I know it's one of the most powerful manipulation strategies. And it's one of the reasons that, you know, the thing we all hear, you might have done the same, I did the same, everybody I speak to, is that we get actually addicted to this person. 
And this is why even when we know they hurt us at the end, we often keep going back and people will look at us and like, you know, they're bad. You even told me they're bad and people don't understand. Why do you go back? And I think it's because they don't understand at that point we are actually in an addiction. It's kind of like alcohol or drug addiction, right? Um, so I just, could you talk a bit about re intermittent reinforcement? Because I think that's part of how we get into that addicted bond, right? And, and being able to see that and know, okay, this is really dangerous is so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you're right. It's one of the most powerful ways to control and manipulate someone. So intermittent reinforcement is the idea that they, and this is what keeps you in the relationship for so long, because these aren't all bad. You have great times together. You're told very loving things, very kind things. And then, you know, the next day your birthday is sabotaged. <laughs> and the next day, you know, you're told, you know, giving these really subtle demeaning messages. So it's this back and forth. That's where it's intermittent reinforcement. It's not constant. It's not continuous, consistent love. You know, it's so, so it's very confusing. And what happens is literally a chemical response. Um, I actually tell about this experiment, experiment in my book with, I believe it was monkeys. <laughs> Hope I'm right about that. It's been a while, but they had, um, or maybe it was rats. I could be totally wrong. No, it's rats. I know. I think I know which one you're Is talking about with the okay. food. Yeah. Food dispenser. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. would make more sense. Yeah. So they had these rats in cages. And they would um, put, uh, they trained them to whenever they hit this bell, they got a treat. So that was the initial, this is the love bombing. So they learned like, oh, I get a treat every time, every single time. So they'd hit it, treat, hit it, treat. Then they changed it up and they began, began to do intermittent reinforcement where sometimes when they hit the bell, they would get a treat and sometimes they wouldn't. And so they did um, an experiment on them that showed when our levels of dopamine, you know, the good, um, the good feeling hormones. I hope I'm saying all this correctly, but you'll get the gist of it anyway. No, but it's right. <laughs> I'm it's not... totally right. Like, okay, good. I'm not a huge detail person, but yeah. Um, so anyway, they, you know, I don't know how they measured the levels of dopamine and when they were the highest was not when they actually got the treat. It was in anticipation of the treat, you know, so we live in these relationships in anticipation of the next time. That's when we're feeling good of, of the next time they'll say something kind to us. You know, we, we learn to over time with people like this, we learn to accept breadcrumbs. You know, when I, when I first left the relationship and I was getting counseling over this, the guy that was coaching me just said, I, I'm, I'm really stunned at how those little nice things that he would do for you, that you keep coming back to that. But he did this, you know, but that was so nice. But he said that but they're so few compared to all the bad stuff, you know, but we get so trained to stay in these relationships because it's intermittent reinforcement because of those times that do feel so good. And that, and that remind us of the person that we first experienced at the very beginning, mm -hmm. you know, so we have that hope back up, like, Oh, things are going to get better. And, and we tend to, excuse behavior with things like, well, all relationships go through valleys, all relationships go through tough times. Well, we're having financial issues. I know he's really stressed. Um, so we excuse a lot as normal, you know, and then you'll be around friends and you'll hear similar things in their marriages or their relationships. You're like, oh, okay, well, this is normal. And it's not, you know, yeah, thank you for describing that because I really think it's like the the roller coaster, right? It's the fact that it's like I said, like a drug. You get the high, you get the love bombing. It feels so good that attention, or or like mm -hmm. you said, somebody who who mirrors who you want them to be. It feels so good, right? You think you found the right person, and 
then suddenly, boom, comes the drop, the put-downs, etc., all that stuff, and you go down, and then you write, then we live in anticipation and want that high again, right? We we need that drug. Um, and I think what's interesting to for me to look at, at least, what was really curious, and I went on these forums and I read hundreds of stories, literally, of people who've been dating narcissists, borderlines, when I was recovering myself. And what I found so interesting, because I've studied quite a bit of uh, around attachment styles, right? And I found it really curious to see the profiling of, of the majority of people that they seem to choose as victims, right? Mm -hmm. I think they're kind of like a lion, walking out on the Sahara, right? And they're looking for a gazella, maybe that is a little bit injured that they can chase down. And I, I had to, because it was part of the healing of finding out what, even though it doesn't justify the action, why was I, like, where, where did I become exposed, right? And I hear some of these people go through many relationships again with narcissists. And again, at some point, you've got to say, what is the pattern here? Why are you getting sucked into this? And it seemed to be, and there's no judgment for me around this. I had this myself, but I had to acknowledge, oh, there's a part of me that have anxious attachment, which is why, you know, getting, or I think this is more covert probably narcissism, that, or sorry, overt narcissism, which is why I was so receptive to the love bombing, right? Because I needed that. And what I realized as I worked in therapy to become more securely attached, suddenly now when I was exposed to that, it actually was really a turnoff because suddenly it, it, you know, first of all, I didn't need it. And I kind of looked at it and thought, well, they're not appreciating me. They're just appreciating a fantasy in their head. And suddenly mm -hmm. the love bombing wasn't like, com like compelling anymore. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't think how you feel about this, but I feel a lot of the healing is looking at also our own attachment style and see why is it that this was so compelling for us in the first place. Right. No, I think that's a brilliant point. Yeah, I've noticed that with myself, the more I get really solid in who I am, and the more I just saturate myself with self love, yeah. <laughs> and compassion and kindness, yeah. I realize I don't need the things that when I first entered these relationships mm -hmm. that I was longing for. Yeah, You know, I don't need anyone anymore to love bomb me. Mm. You know, I want someone who thinks I'm amazing and, and believes authentically they're so lucky to have someone like me, yeah. but I don't need someone telling me how great I am over and over because I lack that, own, that belief in myself. Yeah. And also that's where it comes back to, like you said, sensing what what is kind of the baseline and for me it's like i can sense that if somebody of course we all want somebody to think we're amazing but if they do it after knowing me for two years it feels authentic if they do it after two weeks i can sense in my body that it's fake because they don't bloody know me after two weeks so saying i'm the like what the borderline did i was the greatest man in the world out of this planet you know or she wanted to marry me after two weeks and now i can sense in my body it felt great at the time but if somebody said that now I would just feel this feels so inauthentic because they obviously don't know me, right? So why if somebody said that after knowing me for two or three years, and yeah, it would feel good, but also feel natural and, and healthy, right? So I think it's also about this, you know, intensity so fast, at least for the, the overt one, where we can sense, you know, does this feel right? And why do we need that? But I want to talk to you a little bit about breaking up with these people, if they don't break up with us, which is often the, the case that they will discard us once they have no need. But you know, if we need to break up, one, how, how can we do this in the safest way so we don't become the object of their their mm -hmm. revenge? And, and two, if they break up with us or discard us or whatever we call it, then what are ways to try and cope with that devastation? I know myself, it can be such a devastating place and you're often left in complete confusion. Yeah. So, so yeah. what are like things people can do if they are experiencing that right now? Yeah, the, the, the discard from the covert narcissist is devastating and it's shocking and it's vicious. And it's like they go after you and it feels like they kick you when you're down. It's like they want to psychologically level you, destroy you. You know, it's, it's incredible. And, you know, you know I, I don't know if it's just to justify that they're blameless and you're the bad person and, you know, and it, and it really affects you so much because this is someone you genuinely loved and you genuinely had a, a, 
a view of your relationship um, that you now see is clearly not the same view they have. It's also devastating because when they discard you, it's quick and fast. They're done. They're done. And they move on to someone else very quickly because they need another source um, of energy. And it's so shocking when you're a lot of people and, and you're right that there's a certain type of person that ends up getting with the covert narcissist. And we tend to be very sensitive, very nurturing people, very uh, giving and nurture and, um, and also people who are, um, who look at ourselves, we're self-actualizing. And so that's a perfect match with a narcissist because they can blame us, whether it's covertly or overtly, and we'll take the blame because we don't want to, we, you know, have that paradigm of, I don't want to blame anyone else for my issues. I want to look at myself. I want to, we're into, we're on the path of growth, you know, and, and honestly, they're on the path of decay is what the truth is to put it really simply. Um, and I, it's interesting because I, the more I heal and the more peace I feel, I have, I feel sadness for um, especially the person that I was with the longest um, because there's just no, there's like this emptiness, this vacancy. It's, it's like a lostness, you know, that they all have in common. Um, but that's their stuff to deal with. That's not mine yes. <laughs> to rescue. Yes. You know, yes. That's a huge thing to learn. <laughs> yes. <laughs> huge it lesson. Re it really is because, you know, the same when I looked at all these people, the pattern I found, and people often we blame ourselves, but what I found is actually it's our strength that made us a target because they really tend to target highly empathetic people who are very empathetic. Like you said, they want to help, they care, because those are also the people mm -hmm. more likely to give, right? Um, mm -hmm. And give them that supply that they need because they're givers. And they tend to target those. And I found a combination, and I had to look at this in myself, by the way, but mm -hmm. it's highly empathetic, but also lack boundaries a little bit because that's why we take their mm -hmm. shit to some extent, right? And we keep giving when they keep sucking. While I think one thing I had to learn was to have healthy boundaries. And like you said, that's why I smiled when you said it's not my thing to take care of because I think right. we want to help and take care of people. But that's also what makes us vulnerable to this because they will keep taking and taking. And if we don't have yeah. a boundary where we can say, actually, this is enough taking, I'm not giving no more then we will be sucked dry until we collapse, right? Um, yeah, so I think that yeah. was such a good lesson. And I love when you said, it's not my problem, because that's right. We always feel we have to solve and help everybody. We don't. And I had to learn too, like you, to say, actually, I can feel compassion, but it doesn't mean it's my problem to solve or that I have to accept it either. So I thought that was such a good point. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's a lot of wisdom and discernment that comes from this on who do I give my energy to? Mm -hmm. I am a giver and a lover and a helper, but I'm learning there are a lot of people in this world that don't actually want help. They don't actually want to change. Yeah. So my gifts and my pearls are wasted on that type of person, yeah. you know? And so it's, it's a better utilization of my gifts for myself and other people yeah. to give to those who really want and appreciate what I have. Yeah. That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. I love that. I think that's a wonderful conclusion because a lot of people, I think, mm -hmm. try to shut down being empathetic because they feel hurt and used, right? And I mm -hmm. think the way you have utilized this is such a wonderful way because it's not about shutting down what makes us wonderful people because somebody took advantage. It's learning where to put that energy <clears throat> and where to say stop and say, actually, I don't want to spend my energy here anymore. So I think that's, yeah. a, that's a beautiful way to put it. Is, there, is yeah. there some other ways that people can then, you think, try to go about this healing once? Because you're right, it's ruthless. Even though mine was a borderline, it's exactly how you described the covert narcissist. Um, they already lined somebody else up behind my back. And she wanted to marry me. I was the love of her life. And within six hours of saying she wanted to marry me, I was blocked. I was gone. And then she would start sending me emails with pictures of this guy, how happy they were together literally the next day. And like you said, she just wanted to destroy me. Um, wow. and she would not stop. It would be like 25 emails a day. 
And and then she would start projecting and saying, "Oh, you've been so fake the whole time." And I was like, "Whoa!" That was the first time I heard the word gaslighting. I actually didn't know what it was until she what? told me I was gaslighting, and I'm like, "I don't even know what this is." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, you're right. Yeah, go ahead. It can be so devastating, right? And because you're left in disillusion, you love this person, you thought you had a relationship, yeah. and they will literally switch off, feel nothing, and be gone. And I think we all are stuck in this. I guess it's a stage of grief that we call denial, which is where we refuse to accept that they are who they are, and we keep thinking, oh, they're going to go back to being this person that we think they are, right? And I think coming out of denial at least for me, and let me know how you feel about this, was such an important step to realize this person is not who I thought they were in the beginning. And I have to accept that person does not exist. And actually, until I could do that, I couldn't fully let go of her and just accept that, you know, this person was only a fantasy that existed to suck me in. They were never real. And that was only the time where I could let go. Do you feel that's like, is there a process that people can engage with to try and heal and, and go through that? Well, I think um, I would say a, a, a word and a concept that's really important to understand is cognitive dissonance. You know, even more than denial, especially for someone who's been with this person for a very long time and had kids with them and, you know, built this whole life. It's, it's um, what happens is that cognitive dissonance of there are two competing thoughts happening in your brain at one time. You know, you have this one thought and belief that this person is a good person, you know, and because you've experienced them at the beginning and you've experienced the good part, you know, the good feeling part of the intermittent reinforcement. And yet you're experiencing this person who's being extraordinarily cruel and insensitive and unfeeling and cold. And how do you, what do you do with these, yeah. you know? And it, it, it takes time. I think especially the longer you've been with someone, it really takes time to, to work through that cognitive dissonance. You know, I mean, this happens on a, on a, um, a bigger scale with like governments we trust, <laughs> you know, and then we find out this has been going on in the background and it's just this, like, what do I do with this? Yeah. I had this one view and now this is happening. And so, when you're going through this, you know, you were asking earlier, how do you cope with this kind of thing? It really takes a slowing down. It takes gentleness. It takes um, compassion and soothing and, and acknowledging. And I know you'll relate to this. Have, I love um, uh, somatic experiencing and therapy. Mm -hmm. Um your nervous system is greatly affected by this stuff. And this is trauma that's happening to your body. It's very traumatic and it's very devastating. And so what happens physically to us is that our, our nervous system gets dysregulated and it all comes down to safety that you mentioned before your world inside of yourself and outside of yourself now feels really scary and unsafe. And so whatever you can do during this time to create safety, you know, if, and, and some, and that's different and similar for different people. Like I've learned, um, there's actually a guy I know who I love who, who figures out your body keys mm -hmm. <laughs> is what he calls them, where he'll figure out what, you need to feel safe, what your body needs. And like, for me, um, I need to cocoon, mm -hmm. you know, like I need to be in a room with blinds closed, curtains closed, door closed. And my, my mo one, one way that, and people can try this and see if this helps them. Um, my perfect scenario is that and then being in a comfy chair with a blanket and headphones mm. that are noise canceling and listen to gentle music mm. for for my body constitution that just settles things and it, it helps my body feel safe, you know, so I would say safety in 
being very vigilant with who you surround yourself with, you know, only having people you feel safe with. So people you feel comfortable telling these stories to, um, it's really helpful to have a sounding board, someone that can bring um, reality and truth back to you, you know, cause you're in such a fog and such a confusion. I mean, I, when I was going through the breakup, the divorce, um, I would call two people close to me that had known me for a while. And I would say, am I manipulating? And I just don't see it. Am I controlling? Am I this? Am I that? Cause I was just gap being so gaslighted, you know, on a daily basis that I couldn't even get a hold of who I was mm. and what the truth was about me. So it's really important during this time if you don't have a safe friend to find a, a, you know, coach or a therapist that understands this and you feel safe with because safety is so yeah. important. Um, and I think that and, support person is so key. That it's actually important you say that because this is why I compared it to addiction before. If you get out of addiction from alcohol or drugs, you always need a support person that you can fall back on in moments of struggle. And also, I think the fact is, we know that we often have a tendency to want to go back in a moment of weakness, right? When we feel vulnerable, and maybe they come and try and suck us back in again. And and we are very, and it's so important. It's like when suddenly you have access to the drug, and you need someone you can call, just like an alcoholic, they would then call their support person, right? When they see people drink alcohol, and they're about to drink, and they will speak to their support person, who will help them regulate, like you said, regulate their system mm -hmm. down again. And I think this is actually the same, which is why I say we need to treat it as an addiction because it's partly is where we have a support person, whether it's a coach or a therapist, they're in that moment where we want to go back and engage with this toxic person. We can call our support person up and saying, listen, and I had that. I had a beautiful friend. She was so wonderful. And she said, my line, every time you want to call her, she said, call me instead. And I did. You know, every oh, time I wanted yeah. to text her or unblock her, I would call up my friend and say, I'm about to unblock her. And then she would help me regulate. So I didn't do it. She would say, what do you need? And I said, oh, I need to be acknowledged that this was wrong. And she said, OK, tell me what happened. And she said, yeah, it's wrong. And and mm -hmm. because I could obviously I would never going to get that acknowledgement from my toxic partner. Right. And and then she said, but you can get it from me. So call me up instead. Um, and you'll actually get your needs met, plus you won't engage. So I think support person and also, oh my God, you were married. I didn't know that, um, but that must be even harder. And I think if people are, don't you think, I think at least it's such a good idea to have a third party that can kind of communicate because you need to get this drug out of your life. And as long as you have to directly communicate, they have access to manipulate you, right? I don't know what you feel about that, but I feel strongly that any direct contact is not good after a breakup or a discard. Yeah, completely agree. I'm so touched by that story with your friend. I love that so much. Oh, well, she was so uh, wonderful. Oh. She was my list. She was my list. <laughs> uh, beautiful, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, no, and now I was so caught up with that. I forgot what your last question was. Yeah, me too. What was it? <laughs> I totally forgot to. But you know what? Actually, what I want to ask you is, how do people get in contact with you and where can they find more information about you in case they want to, you know, work with you or, or find your books? We can put links as well, but maybe you can just kind of tell them. Yeah, definitely. The best place is my website, um, www.debbiemirza.com. D-E-B-B-I-E-M-I-R-Z-A.com. We can put it down that's, there. Oh, good. <laughs> down yeah. in the description. <laughs> um, yeah, that's like a one-stop shop, like the place you'll find my books. I also have um, created an online support system uh, on Facebook. I'm currently looking for another platform that's more secure, but we're doing the best we can to make that as safe yeah, as yeah. possible. So, yeah, that that's the best place to find me. Nice. And I have and yeah, a bunch of stuff on nice. And I think support group is such a good idea. So I recommend that, you know, listeners go check that out, etc. Also, because just having other people who can acknowledge your experience, I found again, I like compared to addiction, you know, they go to AA meetings because other people can kind of understand them. And I think this is the same when you're in a group with other people who experience it, 
you find like people who have an experiences just cannot understand and it doesn't mean they're bad people right it's just right. impossible to understand how crazy these relationships are none of my friends could and actually they made me feel worse every time i spoke to them same with my family and this is why i found speaking to other people like you who have survived this and who can actually not and actually understand and when you say this was tearing me apart they can look at you and said i get it you know and that I is really healing just to have somebody look at you and say i get that it's hugely healing it's so huge yeah, yeah. another place too in america at least I, i'm sure there's probably some equivalent in other countries is meetup.com there's yeah. sometimes support yeah. groups there if you want to meet people you know face to face we have that too here so that's a really good idea oh, yeah, we do. It's, it's going over. And I think actually they have some narcissist recovery groups here, at least in London where I am. So that's a really oh, good great. idea. And it's opening up again now. Really good idea. But I want to thank you so much for coming on here and just sharing your knowledge. And also you have some books, by the way. So I think they can be found on Amazon, right? They can. Yeah, you'll find them on Amazon and also through my website. So nice. either way. Nice. Perfect. Yeah. So thank you so much for your time. And uh, yeah, maybe we'll do another one. There's more questions, but I know people have only so much <laughs> attention spam. Um, so maybe we'll do another one. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Debbie. Oh, thank you for having me. You're so welcome. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you get our new podcast episodes on how to avoid, deal with, and recover from toxic relationships and difficult breakups. Also, leave a review. It really helped me stay motivated and keep making more of these episodes. For more free resources on how to avoid and recover from toxic relationships and difficult breakups, just check out the link in the description. You can also grab the free guide and free webinar, giving you the tools to spot toxic dating partners and heal if you've been unlucky to date one. I've also just launching the Toxic Relationship Recovery Program that will teach you everything you need to know on how to stay clear of toxic dating partners, develop a shield so they don't target you, spot all the red flags and manipulation strategies, make better partner choices, and how to heal and end people-pleasing and get clear boundaries so you never have to go through this again. You can find the link in the description. Stay safe and I'll see you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.